So tonight, I want to think about um, how we respond to doors that God may be closing and opening for us. So first of all, I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was a very clever little boy. He loved trains and sport, all sport, and math. He was so clever that he went to senior school when he was only 10 and really irritatingly still always got top marks in the maths tests. He was told by all his teachers he should apply to Oxford University to study maths. And because he was a very good boy, that's what he did. So he found himself just turned 17 in an Oxford college being interviewed by some terrifying mathematicians. They asked him questions that he didn't understand and then kindly gave him a piece of chalk to write on the board the answers he didn't know. It was truly horrible and he was really glad when they didn't offer him a place. He didn't want to go to Oxford ever again. But he was also a bit confused and a bit worried because he thought maybe he wasn't as clever as everybody had said and he didn't know what else he was supposed to do apart from study math. So he went ahead and he did his A-levels at age 17 because he was that sort of clever, annoying person and despite having broken his collarbone just before he did his exams, he got top marks in everything anyway. Then his maths teacher said, I know, why don't you just scrap all your plans to go to university and reapply, this time to Cambridge. I'm sure you'll get in. So, very anxiously, that's exactly what this young man did. And he applied to Cambridge, where he had a much nicer interview and amazingly got in. But now he had a gap year, and in those days, gap years were a bit rarer, and he didn't know what to do in his gap year. He got a job as a porter at Littlewoods. Now, a lot of you are too young, you won't know what Littlewoods is. It was a shop a bit like a cheap version of BHS. Um, Littlewoods doesn't exist anymore and BHS doesn't exist anymore and that's probably all you need to know about them really. And after he'd worked as a porter in Littlewoods, he then got a job in an office which was really boring because it was an insurance company. By the time he got to Cambridge, he wasn't sure that God had a handle on the situation at all. Didn't seem to have any plan for him it all felt rather random. But, on his first weekend at college, he walked into the college bar and he saw a very unusual sight. In the corner of the bar was this unusual sight and like Moses and the burning bush, he was compelled to go closer. There was a girl in the corner of the bar with frizzy hair and she was drinking half a pint of Guinness. Now this young man had had a very sheltered life and he didn't know that women could drink Guinness so he felt he had to go over and introduce himself. And three days later he went round to her room to see if she wanted 
to join him at a Bible study. He had no idea whether she was a Christian, but they'd got into a bit of a habit of going to freshers' events together. So he thought, you never know, I'll give it a go. Oh no, she said, I'm going to something else. And then she said, are you a Christian? And he nodded. Oh, she said, I'm a Christian too, but I've only just become one, so I don't really know much about it. And as he left, he thought to himself, he might have just met the girl he was going to marry. At least, that's what he said in his wedding speech. Now, that's a bit of a funny rom-com example. Can I assure you, it's not the way love normally happens. But I'm sure we've all had times in our lives when a door has been firmly shut in our face. We may even keep pushing at that door for some time. And we don't understand why it doesn't open. What we're trying to do seems so right to us. It seems so right to other people. Why isn't it happening the way we think it should? Just like that young man, we feel like it's all rather random and God does not really have a grip on the situation for us. But sometimes God has a surprise for us. Now in this passage, Paul has just come away from the council at Jerusalem, which we heard about last week. He and Barnabas gave a report of what had happened on their first missionary journey. And there was a big debate about what to do with all these Gentiles believing in Jesus. But Paul's viewpoint triumphed, as we heard, and it was agreed that the Gentiles could become Christians without becoming Jews first. And now, Paul was setting off on his second missionary trip, which was meant to revisit all the places from the first trip, to encourage the new churches and maybe fit in a few extra places in between. But it started badly because he fell out with Barnabas about whether to take John Mark with them. And now he and Silas, joined by Timothy, who they'd met on the way, were struggling to make any headway at all in the whole of Asia Minor. We don't know exactly what the problem was, but Luke said the spirit of Jesus would not let them preach. Wouldn't let them preach the word anywhere. So they ended up in the port of Troas because every other door was closed. And then Paul had this dream of a man from Macedonia begging them, come over and help us. So the little group confer. Everything has been really random and confusing up to now. All the doors they've pushed, everywhere they went in the previous weeks, have led them to Troas, of all places. But now this dream happens. They think, well, maybe God has had a plan all along. Maybe he wants us to go to Europe. And for them, this was just a short hop across one little corner of the Mediterranean, from one province of Rome to another, but 2,000 years later, it still resonates with us as the point in time when the gospel was taken into Europe for the very first time. The good news of Jesus crossed the continental divide. And from Europe, 
the good news went out over the centuries to come all around the world to places Paul didn't even know about. It was even quite an unlikely idea to them. So unlikely that Paul had to be given a vision to do it. A bit like when Peter was given a vision to share the good news of Jesus with Gentiles for the first time. So the first lesson I want us to draw from this second missionary journey of Paul's is that when God closes doors in our lives, it's because he has better plans for us. Better plans than ours, bigger goals and better dreams. When God shuts a door in our face, it's time to turn around and look for the one that he's opening somewhere else. Now, before we look in detail at what happens in Philippi, I want us to look at one little word which makes its first appearance in Acts here. That's the word, we. Acts is written by Luke, which I'm sure you all know, this far through the series, and large parts of it are written in the third person. That is, he or they did this or that. But here, for the first time, he says, we got ready at once. Now, some people think that maybe Paul or one of the other people in the missions team had been ill, and that's why they weren't able to preach, and Luke was doctor, so maybe that's how they met up. We don't know. What we do know is, for a while now, Luke talks in the first person, so it seems like he has met them and joined their group. Now, even more interestingly, there are some people who think that perhaps Luke was from Philippi and he'd just gone over Troas to work or for business or some other reason. So he's met Paul, presumably come to faith, joined the missions team. They didn't hang around in those days. Everything happened quite quickly. And now they have been called to go back to what may have been his old stomping ground. So of course he goes with them. So what was Philippi like? Well, in the passage it said it was a Roman colony. It was actually settled by veterans, ex-army men from the Roman army. They would gain citizenship when they completed their service ten years or longer. And so it was a Roman city founded after the colonial wars was a way of stamping Roman authority on a place. It didn't even have a synagogue. In order to have a synagogue, you needed 10 Jewish men. So there were less than 10 Jewish men in this town. Which means that Paul couldn't do what he usually did. He usually went to the synagogue and preached the gospel first there. So instead, he went outside the city to a place down by the river where there was a place of prayer. Don't seem to have been any men, just women. They may have been Jewish women who had Gentile husbands, or they may have been women like Lydia, who were believers in the Jewish God, but were Gentiles themselves. Now, Lydia was a businesswoman. She actually happened to be from Asia Minor, so she had also crossed the Mediterranean, and she's now living in Philippi, and she's dealing in purple cloth. She's in the rag trade. Think of her like Victoria Beckham. 
We can assume she's pretty well off because purple cloth was what the posh people wore. Definitely cloth of rich people. And she is clearly seeking God because she's worshipping with the Jewish believers down by the river. And she responds to Paul's message. And I love the way Luke expresses it. He says, the Lord prompted her to to respond to Paul's message. It's not Paul that she's interested in, it's the Lord. It's an example of how the Holy Spirit is working in people even as they come to faith. And her whole household, not just her, and she has an establishment, she is a rich woman, they're all baptised. And she insists the mission team stays at hers. So I want to draw a second lesson from this journey here, which is that when we are going through the doors that God has opened to us, there's no such thing as a chance meeting. We should make the most of those meetings that we have. Paul isn't phased by the fact that it's only women down by the river. He follows his master. He knows that women were equally made in the image of God and the kingdom of God belongs equally to them. So he shares the good news about Jesus with them. And the first church in Europe meets in the home of a rich Gentile businesswoman who is searching for God and who listens to an itinerant preacher she happens to bump into down by the river. That's the sort of thing that happens when you go through God's doors. Now, we don't know exactly how long Paul was in Philippi, but it was at least several days, and it may have been several weeks. And in the course of their trips up and down to the river, one day he and his team crossed the path of a slave girl who has some sort of prophetic spirit on her. And this is being exploited by her owners and making them lots of money. Now, Paul is on his second trip. He's been round the block already. He knows how this works. If he messes with the wheeler dealers in false religion, everything could go wrong. So he tries to avoid getting embroiled with it as long as possible. But eventually, he gets so fed up with what she's shouting that he has to act. Now, in the NIV, and also the version that Ted read, it said Paul got annoyed, which all sounds a bit worrying. I don't think he got annoyed with the slave girl. I think he was annoyed at the spirit that was in her. And it also is a bit confusing, because it says she was shouting that these men will tell you how to be saved, they're following the Most High God. We have to remember this is a Roman colony. So when she said the Most High God, everyone would have assumed she meant Zeus. And when she said how to be saved, that would also have meant how to be blessed, which in those days would probably have meant how to get rich. So there she is shouting, these men are the followers of Zeus, follow them and they'll make you rich. That's how it would have sounded to the people who heard her. That puts a bit of a different light on it. You can see why Paul was annoyed by the Spirit. What she was saying was not wrong. What the Spirit was saying was not wrong. 
but the interpretation was not there. So, he acts and he expels the spirit from her. He doesn't shut her up, he frees her. And just like that, it's gone. And it's just one short story. But I think if I was a novelist, I could write a whole novel about this slave girl who was imprisoned to this prophetic spirit and then was released. And then to freedom in Christ, we assume. Now, I think that she would have been of no value at all to her owners after this spirit had been expelled. So I like to think, and I think I'm... I'm quite sure that actually she will have found her way to the little church in Lydia's household and a whole new life in Christ. But, there's always a but, isn't there? Paul was right to be worried. The proverbial hits the fan and the slave owners rush them off in front of the magistrates. And this time, it's not the Jewish leaders that are complaining. This is a Roman colony, remember, The locals are all Gentiles. They haven't quite understood it. They actually accuse Paul and Silas of promoting Judaism. The magistrates are ex-military. They don't really care. Somebody's causing a disturbance. They practice summary justice. That means they don't wait to find out any of the details. They just flog them, throw them in jail for the night and expect they'll have learnt their lesson by the morning. They're just outsiders promoting a backcountry religion. And another really rather solid door closes on Paul and Silas. Now, a Roman flogging was not a light punishment. So you might expect Paul and Silas to be in severe pain and discouraged, but not a bit of it. They don't lie around groaning and moaning. They sing songs at the top of their voices. And at midnight, they're still going, and all the other prisoners are listening. And there's an earthquake, which literally opens the door and shakes everybody free. Now, the jailer would also have been ex-military, and he knows the way summary justice works. You don't get time to explain it wasn't your fault. The wholesale escape of the prison means torture and death. So he thinks he'll skip the torture and go straight to the death, saving himself a lot of unnecessary pain. And we come to the third lesson that I want to draw from this passage. Paul demonstrates once again his compassion. He doesn't doesn't just cut and run. He calls out to the jailer in a hurry to stop him killing himself. We're all here. Don't panic. Now, I don't think we tend to associate Paul with compassion. We think of him as being fiery, conviction-led, intense, sometimes theologically obtuse. But in all his interactions in this passage, the guiding principle is compassion. Even the man from Macedonia, who was just in a dream, he asks for help and Paul responds. When he meets a group of women who are seeking the true God, he responds to them compassionately. He considers them worthy of hearing about Jesus. He doesn't silence the slave girl. 
he frees her. And now here with the Roman jailer who asks, what must I do to be saved? It's compassion that rules the day. This jailer is a Gentile. He's a Roman. He can't know what he's saying. If you unpick the words a bit, what he's really saying is, help me, rescue me. In other words, exactly the same as the man in the dream. So what is it that converted the jailer? Was it the earthquake? Or was it the compassion of Christ as expressed by Paul? Well, frankly, earthquakes happen around the Mediterranean. That doesn't prove a thing. It's the compassion of Christ that saved him and brought him to faith. In all our interactions with people, our guiding impulse should be the compassion of Christ. Paul, first of all, saved the man's life, and then he gave him an even better gift. He gave him a life worth living because of Christ. And so the second household in Philippi is converted, and they're all baptised. And a night in prison becomes a joyful celebration. So, let's step back a moment. I'll take another sip. Luke, possibly from Philippi himself, just surmise, is writing his gospel and acts for a reason. To demonstrate the complete revolution in the world wrought by Christ's coming, life, death and resurrection. Nothing is wasted in his storytelling. Everything is there for a reason. When a Jewish head of a household woke in those days, he said a morning prayer to himself. And that morning prayer said, Thank you, God, that I was not born a woman, or a slave, or a Gentile. And here in Philippi, the first church in Europe is founded of a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. I really think Luke is trying to tell us something. It illustrates Paul's words in Galatians perfectly. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, we move on towards the end of Paul's time in Philippi. The morning after, the magistrates call for the prisoners and in the cool light of day are horrified to discover they have illegally flogged a couple of Roman citizens. The rest of the chapter illustrates their desperation to cover it up as quickly and quietly as possible. Let's contain the situation and pause. Gentle determination to exploit it as much as possible. The magistrates just want him to leave But Paul takes his time. You can escort me out. I'm just going to go and say goodbye to my good friend Lydia and all her household. And he generally makes his point as slowly and deliberately as possible. Now the commentators seem to think that this may have been done to really underline the difference between this church and 
Judaism and to ensure the safety of this little church. And interestingly, as Paul and Silas leave the city, the word we drops out of the narrative and Luke says they again. So it may be that Luke stayed there for a while. It may or may not have been home, but it looked like it looks, as we read it now, 2,000 years later, that maybe he stayed there for a while and helped just get it off the ground. And certainly for a church that Paul didn't stay there long, they had a very special relationship. When Paul writes to them later, it's to thank them for sending him financial support. And he says they are the only church to have done this, to send him personally support. And I wonder whether, while Luke was staying there and telling them more about Jesus and what he'd learnt from Paul, that the idea of putting these stories down into the Gospel and Acts was first born. I'm just guessing. I don't know. So let's sum up what we've learnt. The Gospel of Jesus Christ was taken into Europe for the first time, not because of a human scheme, but because of God's clear leading. He closes doors and opens them so that we can see which way to go. And I would suggest that even when doors are firmly and unexpectedly closed, even as we genuinely think we're following God's will, but the door is closed, it's because God has better plans, wider horizons, and we just need to wait for the doors to be opened at the right time. And when we are in the right place, when we have gone through the door that God is opening, when we make the most of the opportunities he places before us, incredible things can happen. And finally, we should be guided by compassion in our interactions with people day by day. So many times we read, and Christ had compassion on whoever it was. So as we demonstrate this most Christ-like of characteristics, we can become his hands and feet in the world. So, back to our little boy, who had become a young man at the time we left him. Well, I hate to use the words, but he's middle-aged now. <laughs> he is still married to the girl who drinks Guinness, although my hair isn't frizzy anymore, except sometimes first thing in the morning. And God did have a plan for us. So maybe it wasn't quite as spectacular as the first church in Europe. But it's still been pretty good. Sometimes we find that God still shuts doors that we are really convinced are the way we should be going. And he shuts them firmly in our face. Sometimes he opens doors totally unexpectedly. But when we go through those doors, things are so much better than we could have imagined. We are always blown away by how much better his plans are than ours. Maybe it's because we're not very good at listening for guidance that we're surprised so often by God's plans. Finally, if you've come here tonight and you don't fully know the good news about Jesus that Paul shared in Philippi, that brought purpose to Lydia and freedom to the slave girl 
and joy to the jailer. But you want to know. Don't leave tonight without speaking to someone. Maybe the person you came with, maybe somebody who's been up the front, somebody on the prayer team after. Because there is a door we can always open ourselves. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Amen.